Hey folks, this is the Old Hemp Farmer, and this is another episode of Full Contact Cannabis. We've got ourselves a new co-host, it's Abby McCullough. Abby is the digital ninja here at Tennessee Homegrown, and she's also starting to make more participation in agriculture. Why don't you say hi there, Abby? Hello, nice to virtually meet everybody. All right, Abby, I don't know about your inbox on your computer, but I'll on my computer, I'm getting five to six, seven, sometimes even more uh, direct solicitations from companies wanting to sell me the world's greatest seeds and or clothes. And starting to realize that if you're just starting out in this business and this is going to be the first time that you grow, it's almost overwhelming. All the people trying to tell you this, that, and the other. And the prices are all over the place as well. Uh, Abby, you know, since you're kind of new to this business, and as I am, are, have you started getting any uh, uh, emails about genetics? I've been getting Facebook messages saying that people have the finest seed that they're ready to sell me for $4 to $12 a clone, um, which just from the forefront tells me that there's such a huge price variance that there's there's obviously a difference in quality between um, those people offering that $4 versus the $12. Um, you know, there's also the question of reliability and consistency of these sources. So I've been seeing very similar messages, but I think it's important to talk about why this is happening and red flags to look for from your seed or clone supplier. Well, Let's just go into how at Tennessee Homegrown, we kind of made our decision about what kind of genetics. The first thing that we had to consider, well, first couple things that we had to consider is one photo period. Depending on your latitude, that controls your photo period. Most cannabis matures or it starts flowering because of the length of day. So you have to take that into consideration. The other thing, is your climate not everything will grow everywhere and it's not and it has nothing to do with the latitude it can very much has to do with things like how much rainfall you get how much humidity you get also certain areas have certain insects and diseases some species of cannabis is much more susceptible to certain bugs and certain diseases so here you are you You've made the decision to that you're going to grow a high CBD cannabis or high THC cannabis. It's the same same considerations whether it's high CBD or high THC. So the first of all is finding out actually what the seeds are, because you can't make a decision on whether the seeds appropriate for your conditions or latitude unless you actually know how that seed or clone response to those conditions and one of the hardest the things that's kind of going on which is makes it really tough on farmers is the fact that some of these seed companies have been around literally for three years or less some this is their first year so a lot of these people are growing seeds and selling seeds that really do not know how consistently these genetics or perform in the field or under certain conditions. So, so that's the first thing is, is if you talk to a seed company, you want to be able 
to talk to farmers that have grown that particular cultivar because it really doesn't matter what they say. Last year in Tennessee, we got hammered with bad genetics and genetics that just quite frankly weren't really proper for our latitude and our climate. I mean, just because something will work real well in Eastern Oregon does not mean it'll work real well in Middle Tennessee or Alabama or Georgia or Florida, especially because a bunch of the new states, and I guess a lot of the new farmers we're talking to now are farmers in states that this is going to be the first year that they get out to go up and grow. So that's the big thing. So there's probably a good chance if you're a new farmer in, in these areas, no one has ever really grown the genetics that you're looking at in that area. And that's a problem because you don't really know. You can kind of have an educated guess, but until you grow that particular cultivar under those conditions, because this is, you know, one of the things about even being in the state of Tennessee. Tennessee goes all the way from the Smoky Mountains down to the plains, you know, Delta Plains around Memphis. There's three or four different microclimates easily just in the state of Tennessee. So if, let's say, if it's hotter and drier, yeah, then you can have a bud structure that's loose if you are in a drier climate. You can grow flowers that have a tighter bud structure because you do not have to worry about things like Botrytis, gray mold, or a few other the pathogens that will actually attack plants with thick buds. So you go into the areas that middle Tennessee, more towards east Tennessee, where the rainfall now is going up 55 and 60. If you have a bud structure that's too tight and you don't ride herd on it, you can literally lose acres of flower because of rot. So these are the things that you have to think about. And the other thing which struck Tennessee early on, the first couple of years where people were growing high CBD, is that they were getting seeds from Northern Europe or Canada, which has a length of day, the longest day up, let's say in Alberta or Saskatchewan, might be as much as 18 hours. 18 hours, sunrise, sunset. You go to Tennessee because of its latitude, it's sunrise, sunset on the longest day is around 14 hours and 40 minutes. So if you plant a cultivar that's used to having a really long photo periods and you put it down into an area that has shorter photo periods, it will what they call auto flower. It means 10, 20 days after you plant that seed and it's up, it will start declaring its sexuality which also means it has no vegetation period. So, and this is one of the things that was seen in Tennessee last year, is that you had these beautiful little bonsai plants that were only about 28 inches, 30 inches tall, because as soon as this plant came up, it started to flower. And it, and it really did cost a lot of money. And it also, in the same instance, some of these seeds, which were open source pollinated, which meant there was lots of daddies, lots of mamas, and a lot of different genetics. So you had people that were getting seeds that had maybe it's four or five different plants in the field, looked different, smelled different. And the really bad thing about it is they matured at different times. 
So instead of being able to hire a crew to come in there and harvest that during a four, five, six period, they were literally having to harvest over a seven, eight week period, which meant getting a crew, bringing it in there, trying to find the plants, which just is counterproductive and it raises your price per pound. So these are the things to do it. And so how do you know? I mean, Abby Dog, what's the process? What would you do? I'm going to put you on the spot. If yeah, I, I mean. For quality seed, and I was a first-time hemp farmer, one, I would go to somebody that's done it before and ask them, like you, what they did. I would also want to look for somebody that, like you said, has grown in the area with that particular seed. The fact that you can buy seed from Canada and Europe thinking that it's the highest quality seed because it produces these massive buds. I think a lot of times, or at least I can imagine, because it, it didn't cross my mind until you said it, a lot of people will fall into the trap of expecting that yield to be the same in their climate when they don't consider the climate that that was actually produced in. What questions do you ask your seed or clone sources um, other than have they grown in this climate? Um, what is the cultivar? Um, what other things do you look for when you are approaching a relationship with a company that you're getting your seeds from? There, well, I have two different approaches. First, there's one for clones and then one for seeds. For clones, it's pretty straight up. You say, okay, is there any farmers in my area that have grown this clones and can I talk to them? That makes the most sense. You're going to get the best information and it kind of gives you an idea of what you can expect. Otherwise, you really can't, I mean, you can, but anytime you make a large commitment, to a variety, and this doesn't matter whether it's in cannabis, wheat, corn, whatever, that you've never grown, you are taking a chance. So this is the other thing. If you're going and doing this, are you growing 100 plants, 200 plants, just to see how it works? Are you making a commitment? Yep, I'm gonna go get 10 acres of that. That's the big decision because if you go and do that 10 acres, you to some degree are gambling because you are not really going to know how that works out until you grow. And even then, and this is the other thing when it takes into consideration for genetics, it might have worked real well that year, but the next year, if your conditions change, will it be able to respond as well? So the clones are kind of easier because they're handed down. If the clones are made correctly, they should be consistent copies of the mother plant. Now, seeds are a whole different minefield. And this is the thing about it. Seeds are generally less expensive. I mean, if you just even getting clones and cell trays, which are the little bitty cubes that are, you have a small root, and there's anywhere from 64 to 72 uh, slots in a tray. Those, you know, can cost one thing and then you can get some that are in four inch containers that have much bigger roots and those can be as twice as much. But even on the downside, unless you're buying thousands of clones, you're probably spending a couple dollars a clone. Now, on the flip side, this is why it's attractive to a lot of people, are seeds. Now, Last year, seeds, especially feminized seeds, were ridiculously expensive. But they were still one-third or half 
what the costs were of clones. So a lot of people said, well, I'm going to go do seeds. It's cheaper. Not looking in the long run about all the different things that can happen that will make that, you know, 50 cent seed or a dollar seed start not to be as good a bargain. Because these are the things that you have to do when you think about buying seeds. One is the thing that any farmer has to do on any seeds is the fact that what's the germination rate? If I plant 100 of these seeds, is it going to be 60 seeds that come up, 75 seeds, 80? And this is one of the things that hemp farmers found out real quick is that the germination rate listed on the tag and the field germination rate sometimes was a half or maybe even a third. So now that $1 seed, if you're only getting one plant out of every two, is now a $2 seed. Then the second thing they were finding out on seeds were, was the inconsistency. A lot of people, especially in cannabis, are kind of under this idea that you can crossbreed a couple things a couple times and it's gonna be consistent, and it's not. Every time you shuffle genetics, you're gonna get more variations. So once you get past that first generation and, and basically back cross, you can have four or five different looking plants from the same mob. And that's what happened in a lot of states, not just Tennessee, it happened in Kentucky, Illinois, anywhere people, where people were trying to buy feminized seeds or even conventional seeds were finding there was no consistency. And then the other thing that, really hammered a bunch of people was feminized seeds that weren't actually feminized. I mean, if good quality feminized seed, it should be 99, 98 seeds or more that are going to be female. What it found out is because these, these seeds were shuffled, they weren't stable. So these feminized seeds, once they got stressed, all started turning male. And so I can tell you this for a fact that at the processing level, we see a lot of material that comes into the facility where we process Benmar. 85% of it was seeded. Some of it lightly seeded, some of it heavy seeded. But if you're growing for cannabinoids, seed takes away from your overall weight and it takes over overall for the amount of can percentage of cannabinoids. So literally in the state of Tennessee alone, hundreds of thousands of dollars were lost because of bad genetics, getting seeded, not performing the way they were supposed to. So this is one of those things. If you get seeds from a company, there's a couple questions you have to ask. Were these seeds bred open source? And if it means they were sown open source, basically it is going to be your resulting seeds are going to be all over the map. Whereas if you have a person who really knows breeding and it has been internally bred for at least five, six generations, then you have an idea that there's going to be a consistency. And you really can't talk to a seed salesman. You have to talk to the people who actually bred the seed and, and ask them tough questions. Has this plant ever been grown in my area? How long have you personally grown this plant? What are, you know, why is it that this variety 
of all the varieties, which ones get sold the most and why? All these are questions that you have to make, especially if you're doing it on a commercial scale. Because it, if you're in, you know, you're doing your R&D, I suggest you grow as much stuff as you can. Get you a journal and a camera, write down how they respond, take pictures of them, and then the, the next year, then if you want to make a more of a large scale commitment to that genetic, it's, you know, at least you have some idea about what you got, how it's going to respond. And the third thing, and this was one of the bad things because the shuffle genetics is especially, we're talking high CBD, is the bugaboo of being able to be compliant as far as THC. And this is the thing about it. If your genetics are all, all over the place, I've seen lab reports on supposedly high CBD grown in, in Tennessee that were as much as 5 and 6% THC. Delta 9. Ooh, that's hot. Well, a lot of people don't realize that a lot of the new really, really high CBD varieties, and I'm talking about new, they didn't exist four or five years ago. Not to get too far down into genetics too much. But cannabis, if you grow enough of it, whether it's high CBD or THC, a couple plants out of every thousand will have what they call an inverted cannabinoid profile, which means plants that are, have been high CBD their whole life, every once in a while will throw one out that can be really, I mean, four, five, six, seven percent THC. One of the things that we found out was the fact that we were studying wild hemp and this was hemp that was textile hemp from nebraska which shouldn't have been high in thc at all it was a fiber hemp this is your fibronola no this was what something we called neo and it was this was 2014 2015 that this wild fiber hemp which would have no reason to have thc after we started testing a bunch of it, we started finding this fiber hemp from the wild fiber hemp from Nebraska. Some of them every once in a while would have two, three, four percent THC. So what people did when the CBD market happened, and this the first people really got into it and did a lot of it was those wonderful folks from Colorado. And they were basically in finding high THC that had an inverted profile that was high CBD and either cloning it or back crossing it to get a variety that would be high CBD and still have low enough amount of THC that technically it could be called hemp. The only bad thing about this is, is a lot of this genetics deep in its ancestry has high THC genetics in it. And every once in a while, when you're doing seeds, this high THC genetic will surface. And that's what happened. It happened over a lot of places. Wisconsin got hammered hard. All of a sudden, these seeds there, people told them, oh, it never goes over 0.3, were showing up well over and people were losing crops. I mean, it, it's just, it's part of, part of the problem. It's part of being a high CBD farmer. Do you take the chance and try to get the material that has the highest CBD 
or do you get something that you know it's consistent and may not be as high as CBD, but the chances of you losing your crop are minimized. And that's a decision because difference between something that comes in consistently in 9% or something that comes in consistently 14, 15%, it's a, it's a huge amount of difference when you start processing because you pay by the pound. Less pounds you process, the higher your profit margin is going to be. But these are, these are, it literally is a minefield for cannabis farmers, even if you're an experienced cannabis farmer. And quite frankly, we're all kind of be curious here because 2021, supposedly the new USDA rules are going to come in. And quite frankly, they're going to be cracking down on the amounts of THC that you can have in most states. So this is what I'm saying is right now, you're getting all this, all you farmers are getting this stuff in your inbox. You just have to take a deep breath and realize it's like any other product. That little notice you get in there is an advert advertisement. So they're embellishing every, all their good qualities and they're not talking about any of their downside. You gotta yeah. ask questions. Yeah. And, and in doubt, don't, especially if it's a weighted decision. I saw the other day there was Iowa's opened up, and here was twenty-seven thousand clones going to Iowa, and I guarantee you, <laughs> this is the first year that they've been legally allowed to grow hemp since World War II. Nobody really knows how those genetics are going to do when they're plopped down in Iowa. They're hoping, but let's put it this way: that was by the time you transported, paid for the clones. That was a minimum of a sixty thousand dollar investment. Wow! Yeah, so it's a, it's really really weighted, and especially last year when you had people that were growing hundreds of acres. Well, I know of a dear sweet gentleman last year who bought eleven thousand clones, and they weren't really rooted that well. And between the clones not being as rooted as well as they could. And the decision to plant these clones in 90 degree weather, uh, they died. And they lost literally $22,000 in a 36 hour period. And, and this, you know, you'd like to think, oh, this doesn't happen, but it happens too, too often. And it's the difference between a, an established crop like wheat, corn, or something like that has been grown and bred by the same people, not a couple of years, we're talking decades. I mean, that's the one thing that everybody, you know, has to keep reminding themselves. This is a baby industry. I mean, the whole high CBD cannabis industry in the United States is still, this, this is going to be the seventh year legal. Comparatively to wheat. <laughs> wheat, which was, you know, what, 400 years now? Right. Yeah. So, so the, the, these are the things. But the, the whole thing about it is, I think some people are intimidated because they don't want to say, I don't know anything. And whereas I have no qualms about saying, I don't have a clue. You got to explain it to me. And make them explain it to you to where you understand it. And don't, there is no stupid questions. There aren't. I mean, and, and 
if the people you talk to can't give you the answers you need, especially has this been grown in my area and can I talk to a farmer who's actually grown? Then you should probably slow your roll on that company. I personally find that listening, I can get more out of somebody that's trying to sell me something. I can discern better whether it's a good or bad decision just by listening to how they talk about the product and how, um, how quick and accurate their answers are to whatever questions I have. Although that could be deceptive. It can be, but I do think <laughs> that listening, just listening to it, you're better able to articulate whether they're just trying to sell you something or um, whether it's an authentic source, right? Because if you're pushing for something and push, 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 um, and you don't actually sit back as somebody that's, that is selling, right? You're not giving the other person time to breathe and ask their question, and that is a red flag. One other thing I forgot to mention, and, and this is what makes this even more difficult, is that in the first, the, the first couple years, we were getting seeds from people who were not trying to cheat us or weren't trying to be deceptive, but because all they knew about their cannabis was where they grew it, and where they grew it, it did real, real well. One of the things that surprised the Canadians and genuinely surprised them was how much difference the photo period was. And they were totally perplexed that all their seeds came down here in autoflower. You know, and I was talking to one of the companies up there and they went, huh, that's never happened up here. <laughs> and it's just like, <laughs> yeah. and it was just like, and then when you showed the pictures, it was just like, huh, you know, and, but cause they learned. And that's what I'm saying is when you talk to that seed company up in Oregon or Colorado or wherever they are, they genuine, they may not have a clue about how their genetics are going to perform in your area. And it's nothing malicious. I mean, all you know, unless they've come here and you know gotten farmers and done field trials, they might have an educated guest guess. So that's that's why it's so incumbent, if all possible, about making a decision on genetic. And I know that's impossible if it's your first year and no one's grown in your state. But if all possible, get an idea of talking to people who've grown in similar latitude, in similar conditions. Like one of the minefields I can tell, I guess, can we talk about the new states coming on board and their genetics problems 100%. they're gonna face? 100%. Okay, all right, like Florida. Florida is going to be in a really, really tough place to find genetics. Because quite frankly, if you're growing in the bottom part of that state, you're semi-equatorial. You are now, the stuff that worked in Canada, Colorado, any place north of that, if it comes down to Florida, it's a whole new game. For one thing, the photo period is radically shorter. So instead of having a day that's 14 and 40 hours long, you can go down there and the longest day of your year is 14 hours. So there is a boatload of genetics that if you try to grow that far south, they're going to auto flower. Also, quite frankly, there's parts of Florida that the humidity is 
90 on a 90 degree day might be 97% humidity. Now, if your bud is big, plump, tight, this is the perfect breeding ground for Botrytis. So any of these places where it's more southern, more hot, more humid, you have more of a chance for disease. It's just quite frank. And then also there's the bugaboo about the photo periods. Now, whereas Iowa, who just opened up, there's a pretty good chance that the stuff in Colorado very well might do just as good in Iowa. But there's a pretty good chance that a lot of stuff that grows real well in Colorado will not do real well in lower Alabama, in Georgia, Florida, Texas. It's going to be really tough for those genetics to perform optimally. So now we're having to look for different varieties. Um, one of the varieties it's done, uh, it's called Late Sioux. It's a company out of Colorado, uh, but it's half a locket, I think. It's, but it's, it's all sativa. Sativa, open bud structure, doesn't flower to the photo periods at 12 hours. Something like that now is perfect for the state of, of Florida. And it tends to be just a little bit lower on the Delta 9 THC. So, you know, that's what I'm saying is you can go try to find these things. And like I said, there's the company Brezza is in Colorado. We'll try to put up on the website the gentleman you can get a hold of. But these are the sort of things that you have to think about when you, you're, you're doing down there. And, and this is the other thing that people have to realize. Historically, hemp was not grown that far south in the United States. So now you're trying to get a plant to perform in a much hotter, more humid climate than, than it's really normally been grown in. And I think there's probably gonna be a huge amount because there's not concrete proof of it, but there's a lot of theory that suggests that when cannabis is in really hot uh, weather and it gets stressed, it puts up more THC. So there's gonna be some problems down there. I think it's also worth talking about genetics and how plants, especially ones that have been grown indoors, how they've reacted to being grown outdoors because we are we're having that observation um, that some some strains have been grown indoors for so long that they've they're requiring more pampering in order to survive outside if you know if that's possible that's an excellent point um i'm not going to name the variety but abby's right because at tennessee homegrown we were middle of doing an R&D uh, on, a, on a variety that uh, responds real well when you put it, you know, feed it like a fiend hydroponically. But when you put it out in the field, it does not seem to like it. And, and you know, and it's a reason, it, you know, it wasn't bred to be outside. It was bred to be in certain conditions, fed a certain way, a certain diet, and have a certain type of life. And Abby, brought up a really great point you know when you're asking about that genetics is it you know if you're growing inside or you're growing outside which we have more and more people now growing inside strictly for flour well the variety that would work under those conditions may not 
work well in the field and vice versa. Something that worked real well in the field, if you put it indoor, won't respond as well. And I mean, that's a good point. People really need to think about that when you're asking that because we found that out uh, and that really did. I'm so glad you brought that up. We got a variety from a commercial clone grower who had only grown those clones and moms under lights. And when we got it out in the field, the photo period did not respond. But if you're only doing an 18 hour photo period for vegging and a 12 hour period for doing, uh, to, do, to promote flowering, you have no real idea whether it was 14 and a half hours for a photo period that triggered, is it 15, 12, or, you know, or 13? Yes, that's it, yes, <laughs> great observation. And that's difficult to tell from, from just buying seeds, you know, and unless you're asking these questions, I think that you're in for a rude awakening um, and a painful one if you've invested you know, thousands of dollars into seed that you're expecting to, to grow great in your field, which you, you've primed your soil, you've done everything right. Um, and I know it's so hard for people, especially in the States where they have been waiting now five, six years to be able to get out and grow their first crop. And because I, I know what it was like. The first year we grew way too much hemp because we could and then as we grew, we started finding that sweet spot on how much. So as much as you want to get out there and announce your presence with authority and grow 10, 15, 20 acres, I can't suggest enough to the people in the emerging state, emerging states to go, go small and grow as many varieties as you can and then keep notes. Then the next year, then if you want to make a more weighted decision, decide, okay, this thing worked real well. We're going to grow 10 acres of that. Okay, go for it. But on your first year, if you're going to grow out on spec multiple acres or a huge amount of a plant that you've never grown, you have to realize it could go wrong. It could go south. Yes, ma'am. Anything more you want to talk about? Any other exciting things going on in Tennessee homegrown? Um... Not, I mean, we've covered a lot. One of the things that we do want to mention, and we would love to get feedback on, this, the first week of June is normally Hemp History Week. And in the past years, we, there's been expos and all sorts of things, the way to celebrate it. This year, we'd love to get some ideas about how you're going to celebrate Hemp History Week and how maybe that full contact cannabis can be a part of it. Absolutely. Well, Abby, I think, like I said, I'm going to close out here. If you got anything to say, I'm going to let you finish off. But from the old hemp farmer, as always, keep one eye on the weather and the other eye on the market. <laughs>